Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, and Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. We, um, if you were with us last, uh, well, let me just ask a question. How many of you were with us last Wednesday night? About half the group. Okay, well, if, uh, if you do recall, uh, perhaps you do recall, we started teaching on supplication uh, as uh, a part of the, the prayers of the church, one of the aspects or kinds of prayer that the Bible identifies. And we laid a lot of foundation, went through and, and used a lot of scriptures where the word supplication is, uh, <clears throat> is used in the, old, in the New Testament. We didn't go too much to the Old Testament except for a couple of examples. But um, uh, we, we looked a little bit at the wording in, uh, in different places where the, the same word translated supplication in some verses is translated something else uh, in uh, another way in another verse. And uh, to really get the most out of what we're going to say tonight, it, it would be good for you to hear some of the foundation scriptures that we used. But we were, we were using so many scriptures that we had to go so fast. And, and, uh, and I, I was aware of the fact, well, really I was aware of the fact even before we started that it was going to be uh, kind of a, 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 a glancing blow, if you will. Um, so tonight I want to go supplication part two. I know it's a, uh, I know it's a, a subject that, that people don't have a lot of information about uh, because there's not a lot of information out there, yet the Bible speaks of it. So uh, let's, let's go, take our time a little bit, and if we don't finish it this week, we'll go into it next week too, and, and just take our time and, and make sure we have a clear understanding of what the Bible is talking about. Is that a deal? Well, that's what we're going to do anyway. I'm just giving you an opportunity. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 18, Paul, after having told us to put on the armor of God, because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against the evil forces of the enemy, he says, praying, here's what the the armor is for, verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and all supplication or and supplication for all saints. Now, we've made mention of the fact that verse 18 is translated different ways in different translations. Uh, some translations say praying always with all kinds of prayer or different manner of prayer. Uh, but to, you could see that from, the, from just the King James translation by virtue of the fact that Paul says praying with all prayer. Well, if there's only one kind of prayer or if all prayer is the same, he wouldn't have said praying with all prayer. He would have just saying pray, he would have said praying and making supplication and watching thereunto with all perseverance for all saints. So, but he didn't. He talks about all prayer, meaning there are different kinds of prayer. We've talked about some of those. But uh, tonight we want to go a little bit further, as we said, into what this uh, is referring to, what this verse refers to as far as supplication. Now, look also with me real quickly over to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Paul's writing to the church, writing to believers, born-again, spirit-filled believers, just like you and me. He said, be careful for nothing. Another translation says, be anxious for nothing. Don't fret over anything. Be careful for nothing, but here's what you do when you're going to have all that time on your hands when you stop worrying. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. Now, if you'll compare verse 18 of Ephesians 6 with verse 6 of Philippians 4, you'll find out that you can not only make supplication for yourself, but you can make supplication for other believers. So the first thing that we know about supplication is it's for the believer. It does not say make supplication for the unsaved. That's for intercession. Intercession is where you're praying to stand in the gap or to join together God and his will, his plan, and his purpose for those who are unbelievers or the unsaved. But supplication is for believers. You'll never find anywhere where the Bible talks about making supplication for the unsaved. It talks about making intercession for the unsaved. But what is supplication? If the Bible speaks of it, if Paul was... uh, knowledgeable enough 
and inspired by the Holy Ghost to tell us to make supplication for ourselves and for other believers, then we ought to have some kind of idea what it is. The unfortunate reality is hardly anybody knows what it is. And, and I explained a little bit the dilemma that I had. I saw in the Bible that it was an important part of your prayer life. It was uh, one of the four major categories that, uh, that Paul identified in Second, uh, Second Timothy chapter 1, or chapter 2, I guess, verse, uh, verse 1, where he said, first of all, I exhort you, therefore, Timothy, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Now, here he doesn't identify saved and unsaved because he's talking about all men. But we would have to understand if we have some knowledge of the Scripture, the supplication would be for the believer and the intercession would be for the unbeliever. But what is supplication? We'll get to intercession somewhere down the road in this series. But what is supplication? Well, if we look up the word itself, it really doesn't help us a whole lot because supplication just simply means a petition or a request. Well, from my experience with, a, with working with believers, working with Christians, nearly every prayer they prayer is a supplication or a request. A petition or a request. So what makes supplication any different from any other request that you make? There's got to be a difference. Because Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18, our text scripture, he said praying with all prayer. Well, one of those kinds of prayer that we've already looked at is the prayer of faith, which is the prayer of petition. It's where you ask for something from God and believe that you receive it when you pray. That is the prayer that changes things. It is the prayer that receives from God. James said, let a man ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like the wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Let not that man, the double-minded man, the man that wavers, let not that man, the man that's not in faith, in other words, think that he will receive anything from God. So the prayer of faith, which James 5.14 says, will save or heal the sick, is the prayer of petition or the prayer that receives from God. So what's different about supplication? Why wouldn't he just said? Why wouldn't he have just said? Anytime you need to make a request of God, just pray the prayer of faith. Now, here's one mistake that I think that's, that, that some in the faith circles or faith camps have made, and they think any request is made that is made is the prayer of faith, either the prayer of faith or the prayer of agreement. That covers your whole prayer life, and apparently it doesn't. Or if it does, Paul didn't know it. You can see that, can't you? So we make a lot about the prayer of faith, and, and rightly so. Faith is the only way to receive from God, yet supplication is a petition. It's a means of making petitions or requests unto God that's different from, or maybe we should say added to, the prayer of faith. Now, the root word for the word supplication gives us a little bit more insight. It means this. It means to make a request in the sense that you bind yourself to the person you're making the request of. We, uh, I think we looked last uh, last. Wednesday night at Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32 is, is what I believe is a great example of supplication in the Old Testament. It's a great example of how supplication works. It's the story of, uh, of Jacob when he's coming back to his homeland. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau? Jacob um, uh, or Esau, the older brother, the older twin, sold his birthright to Jacob. And then when he realized what he had done, uh, he wanted to kill his brother. So his brother took out running. He spent uh, 14 years working for his uncle and his uncle cheated him all the way, but God still blessed him. Now he's coming back and he has an encounter with an angel. And during the night, he wrestles with the angel and he tells the angel, I will not let you go till you bless me. Now, 
without taking time to go back and look at the whole story, and if we did, it would take the whole night, and so forgive me for not getting into the details. You can see it for yourself. Jacob already has the blessing of Abraham upon him. That's what the birthright was all about. Esau had no respect unto it, and Jacob did. Even though Jacob was a cheater, Jacob was a deceiver, God had respect, and the Bible says God loved Jacob. King James says he hated Esau. What that means is he loved Jacob's attitude toward the birthright, toward the blessing of Abraham. God did not have respect unto Esau because Esau didn't care about the birthright. He was willing to sell it for a pot of stew. And so that's what that means. It's talking about God having respect to Jacob because Jacob cared about the spiritual aspect of Abraham's blessing. But God has spoken to him twice, telling him that the blessing of Abraham is his. He's told him twice throughout those 14 years when he's been running and working for his uncle, being deceived by his uncle. You reap what you sow. He's told him twice during that time that he would bless him. Now he meets the angel and wrestles with him and says, I won't let you go until you bless me. What is that about? Well, folks, it's about two things. It's about holding on to the promise with such an intensity that you refuse to have anything less than the promise that God's made. Now, let me prove that to you. Turn with me over to James chapter 5. James chapter 5. Let me make a couple of comments to make sure that I get them said. I don't want to put them off and then take a chance on forgetting them. So let me make this comment now. Supplication does not nullify the prayer of faith. In some cases, you may make supplication until you get to the place where you can make the prayer or pray the prayer of faith. In other cases, you might pray the prayer of faith and then supplication comes in and adds to it to give you the the assurance of the faith that you exercise to begin with. There is no conflict between supplication and the prayer of faith. They're complementary, not in contrast. James chapter 5, notice notice the last part of verse 16. It says, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. This word prayer is the word supplication. Same word translated supplication in the two other verses we've already looked at, as well as every other time that it's used in the New Testament. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now, the, uh, the Amplified, I believe, says the continued heartfelt prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. So what's it saying? It's saying that supplication is effective. It's one of the most effective tools that we have in our prayer arsenal. Now, remember Ephesians 6, the whole reason that we put on the armor of God is so that we can work our way through, if you will, overcome, pierce through the wicked spirits in the heavenlies, where our prayers are concerned. And it says the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Now effectual fervent is really kind of difficult. Because it's the same word. They're not two different words. They're not two words describing supplication. It's one word that's translated into two in the English. And the word that's translated effectual fervent really means energy. So you could legitimately translate this the energetic supplication. But if you did that, and I'm I'm glad the translators didn't do that. If you did that, it would be accurate, but it would leave you the the impression that it's all about physical energy. And it's not. Supplication has nothing to do with physical energy. But it has to do with intensity, spiritual intensity. It has to do with spiritual intensity. Let me prove that to you. Hebrews chapter 5. Just turn back a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 5. Here's Jesus making supplication. Hebrews chapter 5, 
Well, let's just pick verse 7 out. Rather than we read the context before, this is talking about Jesus, who in the days of his flesh, meaning when he was here on the earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and he was heard in that he feared. Now, notice it's talking about Jesus praying or making supplication, literally. He's making supplication with strong crying and tears. Now, when did this happen? When did that take place? Well, the only time that we have record of Jesus in his prayer life where he is agonizing over anything is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, that's not to say he couldn't have done it some other time, but it wouldn't make sense for Paul to tell us in connection with him going to the cross and learning obedience to the things that he suffered and being delivered from death, it wouldn't make sense for Paul to tell us about some other prayer time and not be referring to the time when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane when he sweat great drops of blood. Now, let me make another comment about, uh, about prayer in general, and that is this. The subject of prayer in the New Testament is very much like the subject of spiritual manifestation, manifestations of the Spirit. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that there are nine different manifestations of the Spirit. And if we're going to teach on the manifestations of the Spirit, we'll pick them apart and we'll take them one by one. And we'll say, this is what this is. Here's the word of knowledge and here's examples of that. Here's the word of wisdom and here's examples of that. Here's what it does. Here's what it means and so forth. We'll take all nine of them and we'll separate them out. In reality, manifestations of the Spirit often work hand in hand, one with another. In other words, you may have some situations, and I could show you examples in the Bible, where somebody is operating not only in a word of knowledge, but also in a word of wisdom. Now, we separate them for the, simple, for the, for the reason of making a distinction between the two so that everybody understands here's the difference between this one and this one, here's how they work, and here's what they're supposed to do. Well, it works the same way where prayer is concerned. I know that, that many times, maybe most times, in my prayer times, when I'm praying for any, any period of time, I know that there are times where I'll shift in between one kind of prayer and another kind of prayer. There'll be something where the Holy Ghost will start me off perhaps. Or maybe it's my own idea where I'll start off praying about a certain thing. And then during that time of prayer, maybe after several minutes or or some period of time, I'll, I'll be aware of the fact that I'm going, I'm shifting over to something else. Sometimes I don't even know what I'm praying about. Now, obviously, I'm talking about praying in other tongues, you know, where I'm not, uh, where my understanding is not involved. I always know what I'm praying about when I'm praying in English. I'm smart that way. But sometimes when you get to praying in the spirit or praying in other tongues, you don't know. You know that you're praying about something else or you know you're going in a different direction, but you might not know what you're praying about. But then after a period of time, I may become aware of something. Maybe something will come to my mind. Maybe the Holy Ghost will bring something to my mind and I'll, I'll recognize, oh, okay, here's what I'm praying about now. Well, it may be a totally different kind of prayer. I may have started off praying just in the spirit, just for my own spiritual edification, he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. That may be the way I start off praying uh, in other tongues. But then the Holy Ghost will help me and he'll take me over to pray about somebody else or something else. Sometimes it's intercession. Sometimes it's supplication. It could be any number of things. There may be things that, that come to my attention where I realize, yeah, you know, I need to handle that. This is a matter of faith. I need to deal with this and pray with prayer of faith right here. So many times different kinds of prayer work hand in hand. That seems to be the case in, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is praying before he goes to the cross. We know the prayer of consecration was being prayed because we have record of that. Jesus prayed, 
Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's not praying to receive something. He's asking God if something is possible. He says, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. But the Bible tells us that he prayed this thing this, uh, during this period of time when he prayed the prayer of consecration. He prayed it three times and it was in three different times of prayer. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane with the disciples, set them down, went apart from a little bit, a stone's throw, one, uh, one gospel writer says. He went a stone's throw away and started praying. And the Bible says he came back and he said, couldn't you pray with me for an hour? So he must have been gone for an hour. Then he comes back the second time and prays and, and comes back, finds him asleep again, goes away the third time and prays. The Bible says he prayed the same thing the third time. Well, we know he's prayed at least an hour the first time. He could pr- have prayed up to an hour the second and the third times too. So if he's praying more than an hour at least, maybe two hours, maybe three hours, somewhere in that, in that time frame, how long does it take you to pray, not my will but your will be done? He could have prayed that three times in 30 seconds. Well, what's he praying about the rest of the time? Apparently, he's praying with strong crying and tears, according to Hebrews 5, 7. Now, what's he praying about? He's praying to be delivered from death. And the Bible says he's making supplication. So you can see the intensity and you can see the continued prayer. So I like the, I like the King James where it says the effectual prayer. I like the Amplified on James five sixteen, where it says the continued heartfelt prayer. Or supplication of a righteous man avails much. Makes tremendous power available. It's talking about a spiritual intensity. It's talking about grabbing hold of something. Regarding the will of God. The plan of God. The purpose of God. And not letting go. Until you get an answer. Now what answer was Jesus looking for? What's he seeking? I'm not talking about when he's praying the prayer of consecration. When he says father if it be possible let this cup pass from me. You remember that the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the world. It does not say Jesus was slain from the foundations of when God created Adam and Eve and put him here on the earth. It says in Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth's creation. I don't know how many millions of years that was ago. Could have been billions of years ago. I don't know how long it was. We know how long ago it was when God created Adam and Eve and put them here on the earth. That was 6,000 years. But we don't know how far back the earth, the heavens and the earth, and the creation thereof went. But the Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations back in the beginning. And Jesus was there as a part of the planning committee. Here's how it's going to go. I'm going to send, the Father says, I'm going to send you, Jesus, my son, to the earth. You're going to live as a man, be a righteous sacrifice for them. This was before they even contemplated or, or carried out the plan of making Adam and Eve. Where the angels looked at it and said, what is man? So whatever was before Adam and Eve wasn't man. And the angel says, what is man that thou art mindful of him, that you would give him dominion over the works of your hands? But Jesus knew that the plan of sacrifice, the plan of redemption, the plan of dying on the cross went back before the, the, the earth was recreated. It goes back to the beginning, the very beginning. So what's he asking for? Am I going too fast? Do you understand where I'm coming from? What's he asking for? He knows there's no other way. He's drawing back, my opinion, he's drawing back from spiritual death. The one thing, the one thing that was necessary for you to have eternal life was for somebody to die in your place. And when I say die, I'm not talking about physical death. It's not physical death that redeemed you. 
If that were the case, then, then the redemption would be a physical redemption and a physical redemption only. But it's not. It's a spiritual redemption. In other words, the price was paid in spirit. A substitutionary death took place in spirit for your spirit to be recreated. Otherwise, there's no legal way for God to do it. I believe that's what Jesus is drawing back from. So when he says, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knows it's not. He knows it's not. He was there in the planner, in the planning committee. He was part of the ones that came up with the plan to begin with. He agreed from the beginning. Yeah, I'll carry that out, Father. He knows it's not possible. But he's consecrating himself. He's saying, boy, if there was some other way for us to do this, if there's something that I haven't thought of that you had planned or could plan, I'd sure like to do it so that I'm not separated from spirit, in spirit from you. That's what spiritual death is, folks, is separation from God. Jesus doesn't want to be separated from his Father. He doesn't want to lose life. And I'm talking about spiritual life. I'm not talking about his physical life. His physical life is no big deal. And I hope you know what I mean by that. Certainly it's a big deal. But Jesus said of his physical life, I can lay it down and take it up anytime I want to. So as long as he's in union and united with God the Father, physical life, physical existence is no big deal. He could raise himself from the dead if necessary. But once he turns himself over to spiritual death, that goes away. The spiritually dead cannot raise the dead. Are you out there? So what's Jesus agonizing over? What's he praying about? Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He's saying, I reject, I recoil from spiritual death, separation from you. But I'm willing to do it if this is the only way. But what's he praying about the rest of the time? Well, I don't know what he's praying about. I don't know exactly what he's asking for, but he's sure praying hard about it. According to Hebrews 5, 7, he's praying with great intensity, strong crying and tears. Folks, I'm not exactly sure what strong crying and tears is when it pertains to God and the Son of God, but it sounds pretty serious to me. Doesn't sound like a casual prayer, does it? The Bible tells us that he agonized and sweat great drops of blood. You think that was part of it? I do. What's he doing? He's making petitions unto God. Now, what is he petitioning God for? Well, notice what it says. Let's read the, re- let's read the verse again. Hebrews 5, 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. What's he praying about? He's praying to be saved from death. Now, again, let me point something out. And I think we touched on this last week, but I want to go a little bit further with it. Doesn't Jesus already know that he's going to be raised from the dead? Hadn't Jesus already told the disciples That he's going to Jerusalem before he ever gets there. He tells his disciples he's going to Jerusalem. He's going to be crucified. This was after the mountain of transfiguration experience. He tells them. The Bible says he began to show them plainly. I'm going to Jerusalem. I'm going to be crucified and raised from the dead after three days. In fact, after his resurrection, he gets all over the disciples because they didn't believe in the resurrection that he's already told them about. So if he already knows that he's going to be raised from the dead, why is he agonizing in prayer over it? Because, folks, you need to understand something. And please get this. Here's the reason for the spiritual intensity. Because the devil was doing everything, bringing every spiritual force at his disposal to bear to keep the resurrection from taking place. And that's one thing I want you to see about supplication. 
Supplication is necessary to break through the hindering forces of the enemy in many, many cases. Now, I don't want to make a blanket statement and say you can't break through the enemy's forces or the enemy's resistance without supplication. I don't know that to be true. Nobody else does either. But it is a means whereby God gives us to break through the hindering forces of the devil. Can I show you another example to prove it to you? Turn with me over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Jesus and the disciples. I'm going to pick out a few verses here so that we don't uh, waste time reading and getting the context. But this is Jesus at the Last Supper talking to the disciples. Notice what he says in verse 28. We'll start in verse 28. He said, you are they, talking about the disciples. Jesus is saying, you disciples are they which have continued with me in my temptations. Please notice the next phrase. And I appoint you. And I appoint you. He does not say, and I am going to appoint you. He does not say, and God will appoint you. He said, and I appoint you unto unto you. I appoint unto you a kingdom as my father has appointed unto me. In other words, Jesus is saying, and I'm calling you just like the Father called me. I'm commissioning you just like the Father commissioned me. I'm sending you just like the Father sent me. Absolutely the same language. He says, I'm appointing you. I'm commissioning you. I'm sending you. I'm giving you a charge. In other words, he's saying God has a plan and a purpose and a will for you to accomplish. Just like he had for me. Can everybody agree with that? What else could it mean? He said, and I appoint you unto you a kingdom as my father is appointed unto me that you may eat and drink. Here's God's plan. Here's God's purpose for them. This is the final result for what God is giving them, the charge that he's giving them to to accomplish. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on the thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, he does not tell them what you're going to do here on the earth in the meantime. He just says, I'm appointing unto you a kingdom. Just like the Father sent me into the earth, I'm sending you in the earth. Just like the Father commissioned me with supernatural power, I'm commissioning you with the same kingdom, the same power, the same results. So that at the end of time, you will sit, on the 12, sit at my table judging the 12, on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Sounds like a pretty good perk. They would recognize, from hearing Jesus say that, they would recognize, wow, what you've got us to do, the reward for what you've got us to do is pretty, pretty heavy. This must be an important work. Then notice what he says. And the Lord said, after already identifying God's plan, God's purpose for your kingdom, you being part of my kingdom here on the earth, The reward of sitting on the the thrones and judging the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired. Moffat's translation says, claim the right to have you. That he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed. The word prayed is the word supplication. But I have made supplication for you that your faith fail not. And when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. So what is he saying? He's saying God's got a plan for you. But Peter, Satan has a conflicting plan for you. There's going to be a struggle. There's going to be a battle between God's plan and the devil's plan for your life. What the devil is going to try to do to you and against you to hinder you, to keep you from fulfilling And entering into God's plan 
is going to be pretty serious. He's claimed to sift you as wheat. He want, another translation says grind you as powder or grind you into powder. Now, can we agree that that would be conflicting points of view? God's got a will for him, but it's not slam dunk. Because if it was a slam dunk thing, God's will is for you to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. You're going to have a great ministry on the earth. We know what that ministry is. The ministry was for Peter to be the leader of the church and then an apostle to the Jews. So we know what God's plan is just because we know the end of the story. We know what the book of Acts records. (coughs) Peter didn't know that. Jesus did. But Peter doesn't know that at the time that Jesus is talking to him. But he is clearly telling him God has a plan and a purpose for you. And it's going to be a great and glorious plan. It's going to be a great result. And you will wind up being one of the ones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. But the devil has another plan. He's going to work counterintuitive to God's plan. He's going to work in opposition to God's plan. To keep you from entering into what God wants for you in this life and on the earth. Well, now, folks, doesn't most of the church have the idea that if God wants something, it's going to happen whether or not anybody does anything or doesn't do anything or no matter what, it's the will of God, so that's the way it's going to work? If that's the way it worked, then why didn't Jesus say, so just laugh at the devil because he's not big enough to, to thwart God's plan? But he didn't. Jesus said, but I prayed. In other words, because of the conflict, I recognize that it's important to take action so that the devil's plan and purpose is not the one that's realized, but instead God's plan and purpose is realized in your life. So what did Jesus do? He made supplication. So can we see then from this principle that supplication is an important tool, maybe not the only one, but it's an important tool To overcome the devil's plans and purposes for your life. Or to keep you from God's plans and purposes being realized in your life. Can you see that? That's why supplication is so important. You remember the story in Daniel 10. Do we need to turn to it or are you familiar enough with it? Daniel chapter 10 it says that when Daniel was reading the book of Jeremiah. He saw that God's plan was after 70 years. To deliver the children of Israel from the bondage of Babylon. So he set himself to to seek the face of God. He proclaimed a fast. He went through. He would not eat any pleasant bread. In other words, he ate just what was necessary to keep him alive. And after 21 days of fasting and praying, the Bible says, an angel appears to him. And says, Daniel, be of good cheer. Because from the first day that you set your face to seek the Lord. To get information about what Jeremiah's prophecy would take to come to pass. He saw from the word that this is what God's will is. But now he's praying about it. Praying and fasting. Can you see the intensity? Can you see the seriousness of what he's doing and why he's doing it? Now Jesus didn't say, I prayed, Simon Peter, I prayed and fasted for you. He just said, I made supplication for you. So fasting is not the necessary ingredient. It may be be helpful in some cases, but it certainly does show Daniel's intensity or the, 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 the spiritual care they had about the plan of God coming to pass, doesn't it? So the angel shows up and the angel says, 21 days after he starts, the angel says, from the first day that you spoke, first day that you set yourself to seek the face of God, I was sent from heaven with the answer and I am come for your words. Well, then what in the world held him up for 21 days? Is heaven that far away? That an angel, it takes an angel 21 days to get from heaven to earth? 
Well, if that's the case, folks, we need to realize there's going to be a lot of lag time in our prayers being answered. No, that's not it. He says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. In other words, he's saying the devil's forces, these wicked spirits in the heavenlies, hindered me from getting the answer to you. Now, let me ask you a question. What is Daniel seeking an answer for? He's seeking answers. He's seeking direction. He's seeking the meaning, revelation, if you will. What does it mean what Jeremiah prophesied? Well, if it's the word of God delivered to mankind, doesn't he have a right to that? Doesn't he? Don't you have a right to know what the Bible means? Or did God just send it down in a mystery and to keep you in the dark so that when you get to heaven, he can say, no, 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 no. You thought I wanted you to know, but of course not. The Bible is supposed to be revelation to us, not a mystery. The only reason it's a mystery is because we don't seek the answer, try to find out what the answer is and stick with it until we get the answer. There's only one thing that I'm aware of that the Bible says we can't know, and that's the hour that Jesus returns. It doesn't say that we can't know the season. It just says we won't know the day or the hour. And the only reason that we can't get that information is Jesus said the Father is the only one that knows that. I don't even know it myself. Now, why is that important? Because everything Jesus knows, he'll share with you. So Daniel's praying according to something that he has a right to. So what's he doing? He's fasting and he's praying for 21 days. Now, let me ask you a question. Why doesn't Daniel just say, bless God, let's pray the prayer of faith over this. I believe I received revelation concerning Jeremiah's prophecy on when we'll be delivered and that's it. What would have happened? The angel would have been sent with the answer. But because Daniel didn't keep up the spiritual intensity, he couldn't have gotten through. And that's exactly what a lot of people do regarding the prayer of faith. They pray the prayer of faith, and it is working. That faith puts heaven in motion, but because they don't stick with it, they don't realize their answer. Now, their attitude is, well, I did everything right, and it didn't work. So when I get to heaven, bless the Lord, I'm going to ask God why this didn't happen. And the answer is going to be very simple. Because you didn't bind yourself to me in request. You didn't take Jacob's position. I won't let you go till I get the answer. Are you out there? Is this making any sense whatsoever? Um, look at the prayers that Paul prayed for the church. Look in the order of Philippians chapter 1. These are the prayers that Paul prayed for the church. I'll go through some of them real quickly, but I want you to see the the principle behind it. Philippians chapter 1. Paul said in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making request. The, The phrase making request is the word supplication. In other words, he's saying, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, when I supplicate with joy, For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what's he praying? Verse 3. And this I pray. I'm sorry, verse 9. 
And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in, all, in judgment and all, in knowledge and in all judgment, that you may approve things that are excellent, and that you may be in sincere and without offense until the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ into the glory and the praise of God. If I may summarize that, he's praying that you would grow in the things of God, that you would grow and develop spiritually. Don't they have a right to that? Isn't that what God wants everybody to do? Then why is Paul having to pray it? Because there are spiritual forces at work to hinder you, to keep you from growing and developing and taking strides forward in spiritual development. There are forces, evil spirits, that are sent to distract you, to afflict you, and to get your eyes off of who you are in Christ so that you give up instead of holding fast to the knowledge of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us because we're believers. Now, if Paul is praying that for the Philippians, then that means every other prayer he's praying, whatever wording is used throughout the New Testament, whatever other prayer he's praying for people, churches, to grow and develop spiritually, those are supplications too. They would have to be. This can't be a supplication. He can't be saying, I'm making supplication for you to grow and develop spiritually to the Philippians. And when he prays for the Colossians or the Ephesians to grow and develop spiritually, that's a different kind of prayer. Why would it be? Do they not have the same spiritual forces arrayed against them to hinder their spiritual growth and development? Sure. Now, we're right here in Philippians chapter 1. Look with me over to Philippians chapter 4. No, I'm sorry. It's Colossians. I got the wrong book. Colossians chapter 4. Notice here in, in verse 12, Colossians 4 verse 12. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently. Notice the intensity in prayer. Another translation. Let me, let me pull this up real quick if I can do this quickly. Another translation says, laboring fervently. One says, striving for you. Another says, um, uh, praise hard. Another says, combating earnestly. Constantly struggles. Struggling on your behalf. Praise intensely. The Jewish Bible says, Epaphras sends greetings. He is one of you. That means he's from Colossae, the city of Colossae. He is one of you, a slave of the Messiah, who always agonizes in his prayer on your behalf. Can you see the intensity here? That sounds like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, what's he praying, laboring and praying and, and agonizing on their behalf? Praying that you may stand firm, mature, and fully confident as you devote yourselves completely to God's will. Why do you have to labor fervently over that? Why do you have to struggle over that? Because there are evil forces arrayed against you. Folks, you know as well as I do that the first time we see a scripture, our eyes are not necessarily open to what it says. I've told you the story about how the Lord dealt with me when I was first working with Brother Hagin. Between my first and second year of Bible school, the Lord dealt with me about seeking his face. Well, in the course of going through the Bible and finding everything that the Bible said about seeking the face of the Lord, reading over those scriptures over and over again, and there are over a hundred of them, every day, all during the day, whenever I had time, I'd go back over that list. I was trying to find out, Lord, what are you trying to say to me? What are you trying to get across to me? Finally, I came across after the, the hundredth or more, many hundreds perhaps, time of Hebrews eleven six. I was walking up the stairs and the Lord opened my eyes to something that I had read hundreds of times before. He that cometh unto God must believe. Without faith it's impossible to please God. For he that cometh unto God must believe two things. 
that he is. In other words, that he is who the Bible says that he is. And secondly, that he is a, that he is a rewarder of them who diligently seek him. When I saw that, the Lord opened my eyes to the reward that I had coming for seeking him over those months. Now, what is he doing? He's trying to open my eyes to the fact that he wants me to have more. But how did he get me there? Did he give me a prosperity scripture? No. He told me to seek his face. Why? Because Matthew 6.33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Well, why didn't I see it the first time I read the verse? I don't have an answer for that. What if I had read the verse or gone through the list the first few days or maybe a week, kept it up for a week, and said, well, this doesn't seem to be doing any good. I need to redirect my efforts in another way. I never would have seen what I saw. By the way, within 10 days, I had a raise that doubled my salary at at Kenneth Hagin Ministries. And if you think that ain't a miracle, brother, let me tell you. It was in those days. Brother Hagin grew up in the Depression days. He's still operating on Depression salaries. What if I'd given up? What kept me from giving up? I just knew that I was supposed to seek the face of God. How do you seek the face of God? If somebody comes up to you and says, "How do I?" God told me to seek his face. What do I do? What do you tell them? Well, read the word. Pray. Okay. Read what? Pray how? It's kind of an ambiguous term, isn't it? But there was something on the inside of me that wouldn't turn loose. I knew that I didn't have the answer. I knew I wasn't seeing what I needed to see. And so I kept on and kept on and kept on. And after several months, uh, well, it was throughout the whole of the summer. So it was three, probably three and a half months by the time I, from the time I started to when I saw it. I wouldn't give up. I have no doubt in my mind, you judge it for yourself, but I have no doubt in my mind that it was my refusal to give up that bound me to the promises, to the things that, I, that belong to me, that increase the reward that belongs to me as a right because I'm a believer. Now, folks, I can't tell you that I'm praying hard about this day after day after day. I'm not. I'm reading through the Scriptures and I'm saying, well, show me, Lord, what am I supposed to see? I thought I was wasting my time. I thought it was just my lack of experience and my spiritual immaturity that I didn't know what I was supposed to know. I was thinking, well, everybody should know what seek his face means, but what does it mean? I knew that's what he told me, seek my face, but I didn't know how. I'd have a little bit better idea now after walking with the Lord for 35 some odd years. And me seeking his face for those 35 years, Hebrews eleven six means a whole lot more to me now than it did before. But it was the first time that I ever saw it. What am I doing? I'm binding myself in request to God and not turning loose. Now, let me close with this. Let me, let me explain this to you. John Lake gave a, uh, told us uh, actually two different stories. He related them both at the same time. But this will give you a little bit of uh, insight into the difference, I believe, between the prayer of faith and making supplication. He was still in South Africa. John Lake was still working in South Africa, establishing the apostolic uh, work that he did down there. And, uh, and he was away from home for, I don't know, uh, a couple of weeks, something like that. Some kind of meeting, some kind of crusade, some kind of um, ministry activities. He gets word that his son is at the point of death. So he leaves where he is, and it takes him several days to get back because, you know, this was a long time ago, and roads were terrible, and so you had to get from one place to another the best way you could and a lot of times that wasn't too fast so it took him several days to get back he left immediately when he got the word 
And he, he's on his way back, and he's praying the whole time he's coming back. He's saying, oh, Lord, don't let him die. Hold on to him. In the name of Jesus, I hold on to his spirit. Don't let him die. Let me get there. Let me minister to him. Well, when he got into the room, he finally got back, and and the son was getting worse and worse. He was at the point of death. He was in some kind of comatose condition by that time. And Lake said he walked into the room, and he said, I knew instantly that I was in for the fight of my life. I walked into the room. I realized the force of the devil was there. The power of death was upon him. The spirit of death was upon him. And I knew I was in the fight of my life. He said, I prayed for three days and nights. Solid. Let me ask you a question. What's he praying about? He's praying for his son to live. But how do you pray three days and nights solid about anything? How do you do it? Folks, you can't keep up something like that consistently your body won't take it so what do you do you go in and out of prayer you're praying according to what you understand you might be praying the promises of god father you said that with long life you'd satisfy me and show me your salvation that belongs to my son he's a believer you said that the power of death was in your hand not in the devil's i claim long life for him he's been a good son he's honored his father and his mother and so the promise of long life is this there's any number of scriptures that you could quote but then what then you're going to have to spend most of your time praying in the Spirit, aren't you? I mean, sooner or later, you run out of words no matter how much Scripture you know. So he spends three days and nights sitting up in his hotel, uh, in his uh, hospital room, praying for his son. At the end of those three days and nights, his son snapped out of it and he was completely healed. Now, what's he been doing for those three days? I would submit to you that he's been making supplication. Certainly, it's been in faith. He's been claiming the promises of God. He's been quoting scripture. He's been doing everything you and I would do in a situation like that, reminding God of his word. Uh, What is it? Isaiah 43, verse 26. Put me in remembrance. Let us plead together. Declare thou that thou mayest be justified. I see a lot of supplication in, in Isaiah 43, 26. So he spends those three days and nights praying according to the right that his son has to live and not die. And that's what, that, in my opinion, and again, you judge it for yourself, there's not a lot of information, there's not a lot of teaching out there that I've found at least. But that's what I believe, without a doubt, that binding yourself in request to the Father is about. Without his word, you can't bind yourself in request. Without a knowledge of what his word says, without a knowledge of his will, you can't bind yourself in a request to God. You can throw shotgun prayers like a lot of Christians do. Lord, I want this to happen. But they're not binding themselves to the Father in any way because they don't know what his will is. And in most cases of life, most of the circumstances and situations in life, the word will cover your case. Not everyone, but 90 plus percent of them at least. Well, that's that's a low number. It's got to be 90... 98% maybe of the things we pray about. The word's going to cover it. It's going to give you a foundation to, to start from where you know that you pray the will of God. But remember, James said, you have not because you ask not. But then he also said, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it on your own lust. In other words, you don't have a promise for what you're asking. You've got a desire for something, but you don't have a promise to cover it. Well, Jesus said, what things soever you desire, when you pray, believe you receive them and you shall have them. But James said, desiring is not enough. You've got to have some kind of foundation for it. Were they operating in, con- in contrast to one another? 
Were they contradicting one another? No. Jesus is saying whatever you desire, if it fits and works into the character and the nature of God and his will, then you can know that you can believe and receive it and get your answer. But that doesn't mean that I can just pray for some goofy thing. Lord, give me an airport. What do I need an airport for? Who's got airport faith? I don't. Do you see what I mean? See, a lot of times people see the unlimited potential of the prayer of faith and they'll say, well, I could just pray for, for, for this. I could pray that God would send me to the moon. Well, I might chip in for your trip, but <laughs> well, there's no scriptural foundation for something like that. And that's exactly what so many Christians do. They're just praying in the air without a foundation. John Lake had a foundation. He knew what the word said. He knew what the power of God would do. And so he claimed the promise of his son, of God, for his son to live and not die. And he spent three days and nights making supplication for it to come to pass. A year goes by. His son's in perfect health for that year, but then he gets word. The same thing has come back upon your son. He's at the point of death. This time Lake gets back from wherever he was away from. I know where it was, wherever he was away from home. He gets back, and when he gets back, he walks into the same hotel or same hospital room, or same hospital, I don't know if it's the same room, walks into the same hospital. He said it was a totally different situation. He said, I knew that it was going to be the battle of my life again, but it's a different battle. He said, I sat there for two days and never said a word. I walked into the, to the hospital room, and I said, all right, Mr. Devil, you're back. Take him if you can. He sat down for two days, didn't move, didn't pray, didn't say a word for two days, just exerting spiritual authority based on things that he's already prayed before. Now, can I ask you a question? Why didn't he do that the first time? Is it possible that he gained assurance of his spiritual authority over this situation, over the devil's attack where his son is concerned, a year before when he spent those three days and nights praying? Folks, I know for a fact this is how it's worked with me in a number of cases. And they're all ministry related. They're all having to do with the plan and the purpose of God for our church. I've told you, I think I mentioned before a little bit last uh, Wednesday night about when God first spoke to me about TV. Folks, when he spoke to me about TV, it was twenty over 20 years ago, 25 years ago almost. When he spoke to me about TV, we couldn't have bought a TV set. And so I thought, well, okay, TV, whatever, yeah, body da. But the more it would come to me in prayer, the more I would pray, the more confidence that I had. I came over a period of time, over about a 15-year period of time, I came to the point where I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew. Not only that going on TV was the will of God for our church, but that it would never be a problem for us financially. How did I get that? By praying. What kind of prayer are we praying? Are we praying the prayer of faith? No, I wasn't in faith. I didn't want to do it. But whenever it would come to me, I would realize I would have consciousness in my spirit. I'm praying about this again. I'm praying in tongues, but I'm praying about this again. And praying over and over and over and over gave me the assurance. It gave me the inward confidence, the inward knowing. Yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. This is what, at whatever time the Lord says go, this is what we're going to do. And so then when the, the, the direction of the Lord came on a Sunday night, just out of the blue, it's time to go, time to start. It was a no big deal. The 
because I already had the confidence. I already had the assurance. I had spent time praying it through. This is what the old timers, the old time Pentecostals called praying something through. You pray something through to the point where you know that you know that you know. You have the confidence. You have the assurance. So faith becomes an easy, simple operation. I think a lot of times because people only hear part of the story, they hear the subject of faith being taught. And so they think, well, bless God, I'll just claim the promise of the word and go. Well, that's fine if you have the faith for it. But do you? Folks, if your faith is going to work, you have to be honest with yourself. There are times where you're going to have to look yourself in the mirror and say, well, I know the word says this and therefore I believe that it's true. But do I really have assurance of it yet? And if the answer is no, then pray till you get it. Then faith becomes easy. When Jesus said that nothing, if you operate in faith, whosoever shall shall, uh, pray believing, He said the the mountains would move, sycamine trees would be plucked up by the roots. He said, and nothing would be impossible unto you. Did Jesus start off there? Did Jesus start off with nothing shall be impossible to you, faith? I mean, when he was two, did he have nothing shall be impossible unto you, faith? The Bible said Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. That means he grew. You think he grew spiritually? Why wouldn't he? If Jesus grew spiritually, why wouldn't we need to grow spiritually? And if if Jesus grew spiritually and came to the point where he said with confidence, nothing shall be impossible to you, speak and believe in your heart and nothing will be impossible unto you, then that tells us we can get there. But it doesn't mean you're there today. You remember over in Jude, verse 20, it says, But you, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. What's he saying? He's saying praying in the spirit will build your faith. It doesn't give you faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. But it'll build it. I can't tell you how many times I've built my faith through time spent in praying in other tongues. Now I'm not praying in tongues for something to happen. I'm praying in tongues and letting my spirit exercise itself. Develop. And it brings spiritual strength. Is this making any sense whatsoever? We faith people have to be careful that we don't just snap off faith prayers or prayers of faith and think that's all that will ever be done. Because, folks, if that was all that was ever needed to be done, then there would be no need for any other kind of prayer other than the prayer of faith. Can you see it? Well, I've got more to tell you about, so maybe we'll continue with this next Wednesday night. Let's all stand together. I hope it's bringing a little bit more clarity than what we had last last week at least. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for the privilege that we have to stand upon your word. Father, we would never denigrate or speak against the prayer of faith or the operation of faith in any way because that is the means that you've given us to receive from you and to please you. But Father, help us. Help us to recognize that there are experiences in the Spirit experiences where we can pray and cause the word of God to come to pass on our behalf even as it says in James 5:16 that the effectual fervent prayer or supplication of a righteous man avails much the continued heartfelt supplication of a righteous man us made righteous by the blood of Jesus makes tremendous power available dynamic in his working 
Father, we recognize that there are some things that have to be prayed through. There are some people that have to be prayed through. Use us, Holy Spirit. Use us according to your plan and your will and your purpose. We choose to cooperate with you. To make supplication not only for ourselves but for all believers, all saints. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for leading us, for guiding us, and for teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.